The views expressed on this podcast are those of the participants, not of Reuters News. I respect the guy, I admire the guy. I think he's the uh, Thomas Edison of our generation. I think it's uh, terrible. Um, I think uh, whenever you give one person uh, way too much power. Like his politics and his work, I don't actually think he's that like far off from most like elite tech people. Those are the contrasting views of New Yorkers when they were asked for their opinion on Elon Musk's new ownership of Twitter. Just how this deal came about and its implications are the focus of this week's Views Room. Welcome back to the Views Room, the podcast for Reuters Breaking Views, where columnists from around the world talk about the big stories of the week. I'm your host, Amy Donlan, coming to you from London. Late last week, Elon Musk became the owner of the famous social media platform. It may seem like now that the deal is completed, the drama will end. But on the contrary, it could be just beginning. In true Musk fashion, the Tesla CEO is controversially testing out some strategies for building revenue. He's considering charging users a monthly fee for having a blue verification tick by their name. But let's take a step back and hear from our Musk and Twitter experts. Lauren Silva-Lachlan, US editor of Breaking Views, and my colleague Jonathan Guilford discuss what Musk's new pet projects means for Tesla shareholders, what it tells us about deal-making involving outspoken billionaires, and what else can we expect from Musk. Stay tuned to find out. Lauren Silva-Laughlin here. I'm the U.S. editor for Reuters Breaking Views, and joining me is Jonathan Guilford. Hi, Jonathan. Hey, Lauren. How's it going? He's a columnist, and he and I have been following all the ins and outs of <sighs> Twitter and Elon Musk, and it's been exhausting. And I, I thought it was going to be over, but I don't know. Maybe this is just going to be our life, Jonathan. <laughs> That's the thing with Elon. It never ends. <laughs> never ends. Actually, it's, more, it's getting to be more and more and more. <laughs> because he finally actually did buy Twitter. There was a part of me that never believed it until the very, very tail end. I, I still can't believe it. But the deal closed on late Thursday, early Friday, depending on kind of where you are in the world. And and now he's the owner. And so what, is, what does that mean to you, Jonathan? What do you think about this? Well, first off, obviously, it means we get to see, uh, I guess, the dog catch the car. Um, so Elon has apparently <laughs> been uh, holed up in Twitter HQ with quite bafflingly some Tesla engineers who have come in to kind of do code reviews. He's been very quick to start throwing ideas around. I believe there was a, a change to Twitter's homepage for logged out users. There's a push to potentially start charging a fee for um, account verification. So a lot of stuff getting thrown around in the beginning here, beginning to see some old names from Elon's texts that uh, emerged during the court case over this deal uh, kind of come in and, and begin to kind of take the reins here. So I know. I mean, as a Twitter user, uh, frankly, I'm pretty passive, not a big poster, uh, mostly reading on there. And I think for those of us who, you know, kind of create that silent majority of users on Twitter, uh, not a lot is really changing right now. But clearly, I think Elon uh, has as his goal to to kind of put his fingerprints on this service as quickly as possible. And that's what's sort of interesting about this, I guess, as financial commentators for us, which is like now that it's come off the public market, in one sense, there's less to write about. On the other hand, like there, it's Twitter is such a big part of all of our lives, and of course, Elon Musk is is now an enormous part of sort of financial world between Tesla and Twitter and everything else, Solar City, and what he like as you say, what he's doing at Twitter 
sort of feels a little Tesla-esque in the sense that like, you know, back in the day when he was building Tesla, he was spending day and night at the company and he was sort of a one-man show. Now today, just this afternoon, we're getting reports that he, you know, let the entire board go and he's just a sort of board, sole board director. Like he is the one-man show at Twitter, which sort of feels like Tesla in its early days. And by yeah. the way, there were lots of doubters on Tesla too. I was one of those doubters, certainly. No, absolutely. It's it's kind of that odd thing, right? Because you look at uh, especially the news of him, you know, becoming emperor of the board, I suppose. Uh, and you've got to wonder, <laughs> what are his co-investors thinking? And I suppose what Elon would point to is is kind of like he said in, in Tesla's recent earnings call, you know, he has set goals for, for Tesla's valuation and exceeded all of them to, you know, uh, the benefit of his own personal wealth. But, you know, so he has some kind of track record here. There were you know, crazy reports back in the day of like Elon sleeping on the the factory floor and and you know, kind of headbutting cars that were rolling off the line and all that kind of stuff. So uh, <laughs> I, it'll be curious to see kind of what the what the equivalent of that will be for Twitter. But yeah, no, um, it definitely. I think, like you say, a lot of doubters of of Tesla kind of throughout its history. But Elon does have that track record to run on, which I think probably gives him a, a fair bit of runway here, even when it comes to kind of his own co investors. I mean, it's interesting. It's like thinking about him butting his head against, up against things. It's like there's reports now about this blue check identification and how that is going to change him reviving Vine, which I'm not sure I really remember what that is actually. Like you've written a piece or, or two pieces actually now about this concept of the everything app and whether or not that's something you can do with Twitter and what that really means for Tesla. And, and you seem sort of keen on the concept generally, but skeptical skeptical that it can be implemented with Twitter specifically and kind of getting that right? Yeah, I mean, it's interesting, right? Because it's when you kind of enter, I guess, the mind space, I try to put myself in the in the shoes of, okay, I'm a West Coast guy looking at this and thinking about this and from a kind of blue sky perspective. So setting aside my not a journalist. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> setting aside my my bitter East Coast cynicism. <laughs> but um, you know, it's interesting. Like I don't think anybody can really criticize Elon for for a lack of ambition in his various holdings, right? You've got you know, ranging from satellite service to, you know, reshaping kind of global transportation to, you know, uh, a, a lot of kind of ventures in the energy sector. I think the it's interesting when you start putting these all together and you can start telling yourself these, these kind of uh, fabulous stories about, oh, well, you know, if you have an app platform here and that gets combined with a self-driving ride hailing service from Tesla, and then you have this kind of communications infrastructure backbone from SpaceX. It's like you can begin building these castles in the sky that are very beautiful, but ultimately the question <laughs> is, uh, you know, does a building stand up when it's built in the air? So, I mean, Ooh, I like kind that. Of, <laughs> it's kind of a, a long way from here to there. I mean, I think, you know, eventually bits and pieces of this are going to probably be done by someone. Elon uh, obviously has the resources to to be in the running to be that someone, but just you know, kind of whether Twitter specifically is the thing that is going to provide the bones of whatever these future services are going to be. That's the part where where the rubber meets the road, right? And that's where you begin to wonder, like, okay, well, you have you know this kind of halfway broken app in in many ways, and like, is that the best way to be going about doing some of these things and do these things even you know? make sense wholly when when you actually try to put them into practice. So I think that's that's where that tension is. With with Elon, as always, I think you can you can kind of make these big prognostications about the future and there are these big ideas, but it's just about getting from here to there. 
By the way, my cynical sort of uh, Northeast New York attitude about this whole thoughts about this whole thing is just that the concept of the everything app kind of already exists on my phone. Like I know that's not exactly what they're talking about, but like I can pretty much already do everything through my phone, which is nearly as convenient enough. Like conceptually all that would change would be like one click instead of seven which I'm slightly unconvinced that I really, I really need that. Um, yeah. But I, and I, mean, again, I, I don't know, maybe I'm being a realist. But I, I think know. you're totally right because, you know, the, I think the paradigm that people point to is WeChat in China or Line exactly, or any yeah. of these other things, right? But in right. the US, the issue that you get to is everybody has an iPhone. Like essentially Apple's iOS is the everything app, right? Like, exactly. you know, everybody yeah. is bought in on all the Apple stuff here. It's part of the reason why the everything app, you know, ha idea hasn't really taken off from a third party because it's kind of, abstracts away that operating system layer that really Apple controls. And then you also see it coming from the other side, like Apple is one of the tech companies putting money into some kind of car venture, right? They've got this secretive Project Titan thing that they're doing. Um, so that's really like the looming question down the road. Like Musk has, to a certain extent, had the benefit of racing against old car, old guard companies like GM or Ford or whoever like that in the car space. You know, people who are never going to do some of the things that Tesla did. But he's beginning to get into the realm of, okay, these are the broadest questions about the future of consumer-facing technology that he's going mm -hmm. to be kind of trying to answer. And at that point, you're dealing with Apple and Amazon and all these guys, you know, and it's really, it's really like well, just different yeah. class of competitor. It is. Well, that's another point, too, which is like the China and the United States commercially are very different places. Right. So like and and by the way, Musk is totally accustomed to operating in China. He's got a huge relationship with the government there, with the um, the, the producers. And he's got what, a couple of production facilities and massive consumer base like so he might not really be remembering that like there's us regulators actually don't like the concept of an everything app he'd have to try to convince them too that that's something that americans not only want but need and is actually good for the the average person so who knows all right so let's think about this from another standpoint which is what does this mean for actually for tesla investors so putting the concept of the everything app aside like now they have their own CEO who's the CEO of another huge company that needs tons of work. He's spending days, weekends, maybe weeks, maybe months focused on Twitter and reshaping that product. Is that going to pull away him away from Tesla in ways that are worrying? I mean, it's hard not to think that the answer is yes, right? Like you look at, uh, you know, Elon was friends with Jack Dorsey for a while and look at what happened to him. You had, you know, kind of people got so up in arms about claims of split attention for him between his major ventures. You had Elliott Management eventually coming into Twitter and, and kind of trying to depose him. In terms of how Musk is going to, I mean, he obviously has a different managerial style that is kind of higher energy and more hands-on, it seems. Um, and that maybe uh, is to his benefit. But ultimately, at a certain point, you know, human capacity begins to reach a limit whether we're going to see Musk kind of do this initial weekend or week, you know, that's a flurry of activity sitting at Twitter HQ and then be like, okay, dusting my hands of this, going back to focus on Tesla. Like that's almost kind of the optimistic case here. The bear case mm -hmm. is he ends up being pulled between these different things 
in such a way that it just it becomes kind of like this open sore in the in the musk business empire and i think it's it's the worrying thing for that is just that elon himself is so addicted to tweeting and uh so addicted to to you know uh like any probably a high volume user of, of twitter is to the kind of ebb and flow of of what important people are doing on there and so you know, it, it feels hard to step back from Twitter when everything that you do there immediately impacts everybody from like, you know, uh, Dmitry Medvedev, the, the kind of former Russian president was tweeting at Elon the other day. You know, he's doing product decisions that affect, you know, these people who are who have global history kind of in their hands. And to step back from that and say like, okay, I'm going back to being the car guy now. It's, it's right. weird, right? Because Tesla is in every way the better company, but Twitter right. is the thing now that is, is really yeah. changing the world, you know? That is such a good point. And I do think that like there's an alternative scenario here whereby Musk just uses Twitter as his, as his mouthpiece, as his megaphone. It has become mm -hmm. his own little plaything to make and manipulate exactly how he wants to. So there's personal value in that, even as if, as you say, it just becomes a sort of floundering bit. I mean, Solar City kind of was that for a little while. Um, and so is SpaceX. And now he sort of dumped them into in, in Tesla and he just does, does what he wants to with those things. So there's there's really like a, I don't know, a scenario that he could kind of do that with Twitter too, I guess. And and it doesn't really matter exactly what happens to the value. And maybe we won't even really know or be able to tell because he doesn't have to actually disclose anything if he doesn't really want to, as far as I can tell. I mean, yeah. the final part of this is like just the mess that all of this was and what that means for Musk, for the deal world. For his reputation, you know, I've, I that part has always amused me because I never thought he'd actually follow through. And and part of him following through, I think, was just that he really didn't want to have to publicly speak about things that he said in private. But what we don't know is like why he really did follow through. And so I think, therefore, it doesn't have any actual implications for the deal world itself. But disagree with me, or and or tell me what you think about. No, I what mean, this means for the overall, the overall impact. <laughs> I think I think you wrote a great piece on this, um, kind of you know making the point you don't, that. You don't uh, <laughs> well, you know, it's it, it makes the point, right? Twitter shareholders kind of went out of this thing, and it, but it's not clear that it's that much of a of of a kind of boon either to the the primacy of Delaware litigation or or to you know broader concerns about oh what happens to the digital town square now that now that Elon is kind of the caretaker in charge. I mean the, the Delaware thing is interesting, right? Because I think as as everybody did broadly predict, that case did not go fantastically well for Elon. But it never really the rubber never met the road on that one, right? We never got mm -hmm. to the point where there was uh, a, a judgment that that cut against Elon and we really had that kind of like, oh my God, is he actually going to feel that he is bound by the the kind of issuance of, of from Delaware, or is he going to, you know, kind of challenge that in the same way he's challenged the SEC and in the same way he's challenged, you know, kind of all this other stuff throughout his career. So I think there is, like you say, a certain a certain part of the story that we never got to see, a, a kind of, you know, untold, oh, what would have happened if if things had really gotten pushed to some kind of breaking point. So from that sense, yeah, we we don't really see what what the kind of limits of the system were or see them get tested. So I think drawing broader lessons from this is actually pretty difficult because ultimately it is, you know, basically the most idiosyncratic guy in US business meeting the most bizarre business in corporate America. Mm, so um, true, yes. Yeah. So it's it's just it feels hard to take like really broad lessons from that.
So I guess what I'm taking from it is going to be thinking less about Twitter, but thinking a lot more about Elon Musk, which also <laughs> probably means thinking about Twitter. <laughs> but this is, I mean, anyway, it's been fun. And it's been fun covering it with you, Jonathan. So thank you so much for the time. Absolutely. Thank you. Thanks for tuning in. This podcast was produced by Thomas Shum in Hong Kong and Oliver Tashlich in London. Subscribe to The Views Room and our sister podcast, The Exchange, on Acast, Megaphone, or wherever you like to listen. Check out our latest views on these stories and many others at breakingviews.com and on Twitter, where our handle is at breakingviews. <laughs>